It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound. Hello, everybody, and welcome. It is Wednesday, so that means you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird, and I want to remind everyone you are listening to A Public Affair on volunteer-powered, listener-sponsored community radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. And we have another fabulous election conversation show lined up today. We have two guests joining us uh, today. For the first half, we're going to talk with Caroline Fredrickson. She's with Georgetown Law School and a senior fellow with the the Brennan Center for Justice. She's going to talk to us about the filibuster. What is it? And also, who's talking about it right now as we're leading up to the elections just four weeks away? And then for the second half of the show, we're going to be talking with Rachel Rodriguez. She is the election management specialist. I haven't heard that title before. The elections management specialist with the Dane County clerk, of course. She's going to talk to us about what she's doing and what the county is doing to ensure the safety and protection of poll and election workers, the safety and protection of your ballot, how the process happens once the ballots are cast, how it is counted, all of the stuff that Dane County really has been doing for years. Um, but now it's really up to heightened scrutiny. We want to understand, have, has anything changed in the last two to four years because of that? So really looking forward to all these conversations. Let's just kick it off and get it started. Again, for the first half of the show, we're talking with Caroline Fredrickson. She is a distinguished distinguished visitor from practice at Georgetown Law School and a senior fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice. Hello, Caroline. Hi, Andrea. Great to be on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Okay, so let's sort of start with the big picture question, lay the foundation. What is the filibuster? Well, what is the filibuster? Well, the filibuster is actually, um, technically, it's a tool that's used to delay or derail the ability to conclude debate on legislation and therefore get in the way of actually coming to a vote to either pass or defeat legislation. Um, So it's it's a mechanism in the United States Senate primarily, uh, and it's one that's been much uh, in the news as a tool for thwarting the efforts uh, most recently of President Biden, but other presidents before him, of moving forward on legislation. And in general, we think in our heads, oh, legislation wouldn't move forward if it didn't have the support of a certain number of people to bring up for debate anyhow. Is that really the rule? Can anything be discussed on the Senate that any U.S. senator wants to discuss? Or is there a process that makes us get to a conversation in which the filibuster would be triggered in the first place? Well, so it's a complicated um, question in some ways. The Senate is a very unique body, and I actually worked there for 10 years or so. Um, And it is a body that functions through what's called unanimous consent. That is that, it, that the way that the, each bill is considered is usually through an agreement. Um, and every senator has the ability to object. That's why it's called unanimous consent, hmm. because you need unanimous consent to move forward. Um, so really, a filibuster can be triggered by any senator. Um, that is to say, I object to moving forward on this bill, or I object to a vote on this amendment. Uh, in order to prevent that, or in order to move forward, uh, there has to be what's called a cloture motion filed. And this is the, the process in the Senate that brings a filibuster to an end. And the quirk here that is really the target of the anger of democratic activists, and by democratic, I don't mean capital D democratic, small d, those who believe in democracy, the, the, the reason that it's, it's such a problem is that it requires 60 votes to pass. So this is why everybody knows that in the Senate, you need a supermajority now to pass any legislation because every single piece of legislation is objected to and therefore subject to a filibuster and therefore every single piece of legislation with some exceptions we can talk about um, requires 60 votes. So this 
cloister motion, really, really sort of like the filibuster override. You need 60 votes to override that, even though you technically need 50 plus um, the vice president or 51 votes for legislation to be passed. Is that accurate? Well, um, you could say that, I suppose, except that you can't get to the bill and you can't get to a vote uh, um, without having 60 ever. 60 votes. And, uh, as I said, except for a few exceptions that are based on statutes that override the Senate rules. And that's why budget issues um, are able to move forward on a majority vote. So this is called the Reconciliation Act. Um, it's why uh, President Biden and the, and the Democrats were able to move some of the big legislation that they got accomplished because those were subject to budget rules and not under the regular um, legislative process. Um, they're also, they got rid of the filibuster for nominations, including mm-hmm. judges. So in those narrow circumstances, when it's budget related or judicial related, and is that for all judges or just uh, U.S. Supreme Court judges? Um, no, all federal all judges. judges. It, it started out with just the lower court judges, that is the courts of appeal and the district courts, um, as well as presidential nominees out in the cabinet and so forth. And then it was expanded to include the U.S. Supreme Court. So let's take a step back. And so in those exceptions, when it deals with uh, judicial nominations um, and budget issues, the filibuster doesn't apply because the Senate has created exceptions to it. But other than that, the uh, filibuster does apply, which requires you to get 60 votes instead of 50 plus one or 50 plus the vice president. Um, tell, tell us the history of this. This wasn't really coming. This didn't seem to come up benignly on just some random piece of legislation. It seems to have been intentionally crafted to undermine civil rights legislation. Is that accurate? Well, you know, it's a really good point, Andrea. Um, but to sort of give you the broad arc of history here, uh, really what's what's strange about the whole um, history of the filibuster is that, well, first of all, people should know, it's not in the Constitution, right? This is something right. just in the Senate rules. They created it to govern themselves. Um, and right at the beginning of the, the new nation, right after the Constitution was adopted, you know, the Senate really didn't do a whole lot, right? There was a lot of legislating going on. So uh, Aaron Burr, the infamous Aaron Burr, um, who was in the duel um, with Alexander Hamilton. And now everybody um, knows that. My children know who Aaron Burr is, thanks to the exactly. musical. So right? everybody knows who, so, but he's also in some ways responsible for the filibuster. And that's because mm. there was a point where they were doing some housekeeping and looking through the Senate rule book and realized that they, um, they had a, a, a motion to call the question, which is for anybody who knows, you know, Robert's Rules of Order or traditional parliamentary procedure, right? There's always in every legislative body, there's a way to call the question that is to move to a vote. Well, they thought they really didn't need one in the Senate um, because they weren't subject to any, you know, sort of at that point, there wasn't a lot of legislating going on. So cleaning house, they basically removed that um, and left no ability in the Senate to call the question. Um, This didn't really become such a big deal until, the 1850s when, you know, with the rise of, you know, real um, uh, pre-war, pre-Civil War tensions, um, there were a lot of very lengthy speeches um, given on the Senate floor, and they adopted the term filibuster, which comes from the Dutch, having to do with piracy, um, Freibude or something like that. um, So, you know, um, and I don't really know why that was, but, but as a result, so that's where the term came. Um, but it, again, it still wasn't such a big deal because the Senate and Congress overall were still not legislating a lot. And of course, the country changed with the Civil War and industrialization. Um, and then uh, and, and Congress had much more to do by the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century. And it really came to a head during um, the lead up to World War One, okay. when um, uh, Congress was trying to pass uh, legislation to allow the um, merchant marine boats to be armed because the German U-boats were shooting at them and there were isolationists who were blocking legislation. And so uh, President Wilson um, went to you know, the media and made a big you know, sort of propaganda pitch to 
get this terrible situation fixed where a small handful of people in the Senate could block legislation that was going to protect um, our boats from this um, military attack, um, at which point they adopted the cloture rule. So that's when the cloture rule came into being was in 1917. Um, and at that point it was 67 votes. But you're right, Andrea, in suggesting that it's really main use was subsequent to that um, when uh, there was an effort to actually address the pervasive um, racism and Jim Crow laws in the United States. Okay. And Southern senators um, were filibustering everything. And, um, and that's why the filibuster is so identified with preventing civil rights from going forward. Um, there were you know, infamous um, efforts to block these bills like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 um, that lasted days and days and days. And ha- has there been civil rights legislation and other legislation over the decades that had the political will to move forward of 51, 52, et cetera, senators and the population of the country supporting it, but was filibustered and never became law? Well, yes, um, uh, absolutely. Um, And in fact, most recently in the Senate right now, um, there has been legislation that has been proposed to address the many problems that we face um, in in remedying our uh, electoral problems. Mm -hmm. And there's been a filibuster and there is a majority support for this, these legis- these bills. Um, so there are a couple of Democratic senators who purportedly support the legislation but don't support getting rid of the filibuster. So you have a majority, but you do still have a filibuster. And therefore, even though this is the will of the majority, they're very important reforms that would address some very significant, terrible decisions by the Supreme Court, uh, try and address um, partisan gerrymandering and all the kind of um, malignancies that our electoral process faces right now. And they can't move forward because of the filibuster. And yet they have majority support. And because this is just a rule of the Senate, what would it take to get rid of the filibuster? Do you need just 50 plus one people to get rid of the filibuster if those votes existed? Well, yes, that's right. Um, Technically, um, the way you amend Senate rules is at the beginning of a session, which happens every two years with the election of a new Congress. That is that when the House of House members are are reelected, that is called a new Congress. So it would be this coming January would be a new Congress. Um, At that point, they readopt the Senate rules. And in theory, that's when they would be changed. And it requires not even a 60 vote, but a 67 vote majority to pat, to change the Senate rules. However, there is a workaround, um, which is known, you know, kind of colloquially as the nuclear option, mm-hmm. where you can change a rule in the middle of a session um, by using a very complicated technique, which I can explain to you if you're interested, but basically to say um, that requires only 50 votes um, and it allows you to address um, a filibuster either in a broad context or in a narrow context around one particular issue. So there is policy, and I don't think we need to know the details, but I, I am intrigued by the the ending words there, your final sentence there, Caroline, about um, how you could change the filibuster to apply to everything, or could you just say, okay, we're eliminating the filibuster for this vote right now? Regardless of how complicated the policy is, is that something that's possible? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, that's more or less what happened with the nominations, because the first time they changed the, or got rid of the filibuster for um, court nominees, they did not include the Supreme Court. Hmm. Uh, and so they did it. Um, and basically, you just, you know, it's 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 challenging the ruling of the parliamentarian. Uh, and then there's a vote that uh, if you want to overturn a ruling of the parliamentarian, which in this case would be to say that this requires 60 votes, um, that overruling the parliamentarian is only a 50 vote vote or, you know, 50 plus one. So that's why you basically set a precedent by overturning a ruling, they call it the ruling of the chair because the chair is the person who's sitting on the dais above the Senate, but is advised by the parliamentarian about what the rules are. 
um, that pertain. And so that's what happened. It's not technically an overall rules change. It's setting a new precedent for the interpretation of the rule in light of the specific issue in front of the Senate. So they could exactly do the same thing. It's been talked about doing it with respect to civil rights issues, voting rights, voting rights. Um, and so forth to say, um, you know, in the case of voting rights legislation, now, you know, you have to sort of think about, you know, how, how you craft that challenge uh, because, you know, it could be used by people who also want to restrict voting rights. Right. Correct. Correct. We're talking right now with Caroline Fredrickson. She is a distinguished visitor from practice with Georgetown Law School and a senior fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice. Um, we're talking about the filibuster. So, Caroline, there are issues um, that are happening uh, right now in the U.S. Senate that are being stalled because of the filibuster. You talked about gerrymandering, talked about voting rights. Uh, there's been conversations about uh, response to um, the eliminate reversal of Roe v. Wade and protecting reproductive rights. And it seems like there's uh, enough votes, 50 plus one, enough votes, but not to get over the filibuster. Are you seeing now these conversations play out now that there is a national election coming up and, and very close Senate races here in Wisconsin and Georgia and Pennsylvania and Arizona um, on both sides, sides where the Democrat currently holds the seat or where Republicans call, currently hold the seats. There's a handful of close races. I wonder what the conversations are happening in those races. Well, so, Andrea, it's a great question. And I have to say, to my knowledge, I have not heard any candidate talking about the filibuster. And there probably is a major overall reason why is that in the, in the states you're talking about, the races are really close. Mm -hmm. uh, Wisconsin, obviously, you're also aware um, of that fact. And as a result, I would imagine the candidates are a little afraid of sounding um, too, um, too partisan or too, um, uh, well, in any case, I th and for one thing, they're still trying to appeal to people who might be undecided. So it might, you know, there are a lot of people who think it's a good thing that not a lot of stuff happens in Congress and that the filibuster might have some benefit. Um, and aren't necessarily that keyed in on how it's been used historically. Right. Um, and the other point, and I think this is probably much more the accurate one, um, and I you know, worked on campaigns myself, um, a number of them, is voters don't really want, or it doesn't, they're not motivated by Senate rules changes, even though the filibuster has become more well-known um, than it has been in the past, certainly by people who have been working on voting rights and democracy issues it's become um, a real anathema to, um, to progress. But I think for the broad swath of voters, um, for a candidate to spend too much time talking about a rule and employing the nuclear option and so forth might sound a little bit off point when they wanna hear about the economy and, right. um, and, you know, and healthcare and education and maybe the war in Ukraine. But it's just sort of interesting, I wonder if, right, if someone involved more deeper in all these races, it, it's sort of like a sleeper conversation insider politics of maybe all of these candidates are thinking about that and and ready to vote a certain way um, when if and when they win their elections. But it's not something that they're openly talking about. Cause I right. know. Yeah, I know. On this show, we interviewed we had a wonderful opportunity to talk with all the candidates that were running uh, for the Senate seat. Now there's. Uh, one Democrat left, Mandela Barnes. But before uh, it was narrowed down to one Democrat, we talked with all the candidates and asking them about the filibuster was part of my conversation. And almost all of them, in fact, I would, I think all of them said, oh, yes, I would vote to get rid of the filibuster in limited circumstances. And yet you're correct. This was beyond me asking them the direct question. This was not part of their conversation when they were on the campaign trail. Right. Let me say there are a couple of things that are embedded in, in your conversation. One is that you were talking to them in the primary. That's a bit of a different circumstance, right. too. Um, but the other is that, you know, I, I think anyone who's worked on campaigns and anybody who's been on the receiving ends of the massive numbers of emails and direct mail you get in, um, from the U.S. Postal Service knows that there's a lot of segmented targeting. So it may very well be that for, um, you know, the voters who are known to be high, you know, extremely progressive, committed voters who really think a lot about um, voting rights 
they may be getting a motivating email that says you really have to vote because the only way we're going to get four is that you go vote and elect me. And so it may just be that you know candidates aren't making these kinds of messages part of their general election message, but instead are making it a targeted appeal to certain highly committed yeah. progressive voters. And I wonder, can you talk with us a little bit about the the impact of this, not just right, we can know what the specific issues are today that we're talking about reproductive rights, abortion rights, uh, gerrymandering, voting rights, but who knows what the issues will come up, right, ad- you know, in, in the coming years, environmental issues, perhaps some things we haven't even thought about. And I think something big picture to look about is sort of how the numbers get played out with the filibuster, well, taking the filibuster off the table, with the way the Senate is designed, where smaller states on some level have more power than larger states, because everyone has two, regardless of if there's 10 people in your state or a million people in your state. Um, It seems that at some point, smaller states get more and more power with um, the filibuster being in place. Do you think that's an accurate assessment? Oh, it's absolutely true. I mean, I think let's let's talk about the fact that, you know, California has about 39 million people. They get two senators and Wyoming, um, Vermont, Alaska, all have fewer than a million and they also get two senators. And that means once you add the filibuster to the same, to that mix, you have a much higher degree of uh, influence from small states than from larger states. I mean, they're actually calculation is by 2040, two thirds of Americans are gonna be represented by just 30% of the Senate members. That is 30 senators are gonna represent, you know, 66% of us. And that means that we're not gonna get a fair deal in in the Senate in terms of of how legislation is considered that affects us and very importantly. And so um, you're right, absolutely. It puts a big, big, more than a thumb on the scale. It puts like half the body on the scale Mm -hmm. in favor of the small small states uh, over large populations of Americans. And does this tie back to your opening statement, you know, earlier right right when we kicked off the show where you talked about democracy with you know a lowercase d if people aren't getting you know fair representation and their their voice in some states counts more than in others the filibuster and overall the structure of the senate really has an impact on that that's absolutely right Uh, the senate is a highly problematic body when you think about it from purely democratic principles why is it that we have this body that is set up first of all to represent so few of us fairly and then adds its own rules to the mix that thwart the demands of the majority in an even larger degree it really adds up to a situation where democracy in america is being severely undermined by both the senate structure as it's established in the constitution and then um, by the rules that it, it adopted itself And this is, I know, part of your work as a senior fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice. The Brennan Center has been on record, I think, for more than a decade advocating for the end of the filibuster for all of these reasons, I presume. Well, actually, the the Brennan Center has just more recently come to that position, um, which I'm happy to say I was part of um, moving forward. Um, Oh, sorry, I got that wrong. Good. To take a position that um, to... um, well, they went from advocating reform of the filibuster to being um, in support of abolishing the filibuster. Ah, gotcha. What what triggered the difference then? Well, I think it was clear that that reform wasn't enough, uh, and reform still allows the thwarting of democracy, and that we are in a moment in America where our democracy is so threatened and so um, on the on the brink of of real um, uh, significant harm that unless we take some significant actions, we are um, in real peril. And so it was, I think, in the recognition of the moment that we're in that um, half measures are not adequate. Mm-hmm. In our in our final moments here, Caroline, I, I want to sort of pick up on 
what you were just saying. I feel like every 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 year we talk with the candidates. Every four year, the uh, two and four years, the federal candidates, but each every year, local electeds, and everyone always says, you know, this election is the most important, and this and and something, and that's fine. That's how campaigning is, and there's always important issues, but. It does feel like, right, I'm 49 years old, so right, maybe I've been voting right for the last 30-ish years. It does feel like this, there is an issue with democracy that wasn't there before. Do you think that's accurate? Well, I, I do think we're at a heightened moment, and there are a lot of reasons for that. I think, you know, we saw in the last election how precarious it was. We had an insurrection at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And now we have had um, uh, the census uh, recently, which was also very challenged under the Trump administration and a lot of problems with how um, data was collected in order to reflect a true count of our citizens. Um, And then redistricting is going forward. So an apportionment in the states. So our elections in the future are going to be highly subject to what could be an incredibly severe uh, gerrymandering uh, that will make things even more extreme and really harden the grip of the partisans. But particularly, I am trying not to be uh, a pro-Democrat, and here I'm talking about with a capital D, but uh, because Democrats have certainly engaged in gerrymandering themselves. But at this moment that we're in, the balance is really tipped so far where the Republicans are just much more ex- expert at it and have been very um, aggressive. And, and it's one of those things that sort of spirals uh, out of control because the more they can gerrymander, the more that they can gerrymander. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really hard to know how you dial that back after a certain point. And, um, you know, I, I teach comparative constitutional law. So I say, you know, look at what's going on in Hungary. Um, there are examples of other countries where they have been, they keep ratcheting it up. The more they gerrymander, the more they can gerrymander. And then that means that in the, the opposition, even if it's the majority of the people, has no way to actually break into power. Huh. No way to reverse the degradation of democracy. Well, I really appreciate, you know, you sharing your expertise and your knowledge with us and talking to us today about the filibuster and what happens next. It's definitely, I think, so important to have this conversation. And I want all of us to have this frame when we're looking at the elections here in Wisconsin and uh, nationally. So this has just been really helpful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. And I'm actually really excited. I'm going to be in Madison in two weeks. So oh, great. <laughs> can't wait to be there. Coming uh-huh. out to the, to the um, UW, uh, University of Wisconsin Law Review. Oh, fantastic. A, a symposium that um, we're talking about judicial nominations. So it's great. It'll be great for me to be back in Madison, which is a place I love. Oh, that'll so. be great. We'll have to, I'm, I have no doubt that the Wharton News team will be talking to you and, and covering that event. So we're excited that you're coming to Wisconsin. Thank you. Well, I hope so. I'm looking forward to having some cheese. <laughs> Fantastic. All okay. right. Well, thank you so much, Caroline Fredrickson, Georgetown Law School Distinguished Visitor from Practice and Senior Fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice. Thanks, Caroline. Thank you. And I want to remind everyone, you are listening to a a public affair uh, on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I am Carousel Andrea Baird. Um, I feel like uh, recollection to my childhood when people called me Andrea. I like it. I'm going with it. Um, But thanks, everyone, for listening. And let's keep the conversation going. By the way, I want to remind everyone, we would love your questions and calls. Give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Jade and Megan are in the studio. They're ready for your calls. Mary Jo is out there volunteering. So please give us a call if you want to join the conversation at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. And here's what you're going to want to call about is our next conversation coming up right now. We're talking with Rachel Rodriguez. Again, Rachel Rodriguez is the elections management specialist with the Dane County Clerk. Hello, Rachel. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So that's where I need to start with is your title, elections management specialist. Was that always your title or has that really been crafted now because there's so much more dedication and attention paid to elections? Well, that's been my title since I started in the Dane County Clerk's Office, which was in the fall of 2019. But you're right there. You know, since that time, um, 
there has been even more attention that is being paid to elections. Uh, you know, my job, I started working in elections in, it was actually the week before the uh, gubernatorial recall primary in 2012. So okay. it was a, a crazy time to start working in elections. So I've been doing it for over a decade at this point. But yeah, it has definitely got increasingly more complicated and uh, involved every year that I've been doing this. And what kind of work do you do? Do you oversee and help us understand what the county does, right? It seems like the county oversees the elections, but you don't roll the run the polling places. Those are the municipalities. Break it down for us. Sure. Yep. So Wisconsin has what we like to say is the most decentralized election administration system in the United States. So we run Ooh. elections at the municipal level. There's 1850 municipalities thereabouts in Wisconsin. So those are 1850 local election officials and then 72 counties. And then the way that this uh, that relationship works in Wisconsin is that um, you're right that the municipalities are the ones who are running the polling places. They're the ones who are registering voters and sending out absentee ballots where the county comes into the play is that we are the ones who design the ballot. So if you are a voter in Dane County, I'm the one who designed your ballot. Um, and we program all of the election equipment, so the tabulators that you would uh, feed your ballot into if you vote at your polling place on election day. And then we also um, report results on election night. So all of those results from the municipalities come into our office, and then we are the ones that report them out to the public. Do you calculate the results? Do the ballots be get, get given to you, or are the g ballots counted and tab counted first in the municipalities and then sent to you for verification? Yep, so they are counted first by the municipalities. Okay. So the tabulators at the polling places on election days are, you know, they're the ones that are, are really counting the ballots, and they report, you know, uh, those results out that tape that spits out at the end ah, of the election night right. with all the results in it. If if you're, so you stay at your poll past the closing of the election, um, I guess you stay at your ward past the closing, the end of the election time, past 8 p.m. or right. It's longer than 8 p.m. if someone's still in line. Um, and yep, then that's correct. they announce it. I've I've been there for that. That is that the municipal accounting then? Yeah, that is what happens at the municipality. And so then the municipality will sort of certify and canvas their results at a local level and then send those results to us where we will canvas um, results as well. And, you know, if there are county races on the ballot, so for this fall, things like clerk of courts and sheriff and uh, those county referendums, the county will canvas and certify those results. Um, and that's where that process will end. But then for the statewide offices and the legislative offices, we will canvas those results for Dane County and then send them to the Elections Commission where they will canvas statewide and certify statewide. Rachel, what is what do you mean by the word canvas? So canvas canvas is where we really make the results official. So you'll see totals on election night, but election officials will always say those are the unofficial results. Okay. The results don't become official until after we have canvassed them or and have certified them. So sometimes there are things that happen during um, the day at a polling place where um, maybe, you know, there was an issue where a voter got issued the wrong type of ballot. And so you need to adjust the results a little bit. Or maybe I've had this happen before where um, municipal clerks discovered that they didn't process all of the absentee ballots. So then they will, at their municipal canvas, they will open those absentee ballots and count the results. Or if there are ever any provisional ballots that need to be counted after election day. So the, the totals usually get adjusted a little bit, not, you know, significantly in uh, most elections from what you see on election night. You might add gotcha. one or two votes to one candidate or subtract one or two votes to one candidate because of, um, you know, some because because all election officials are human. And so, you know, there are minor errors that sometimes happen on election day where we need to actually make those results reflective of um, what uh, actually happened. Gotcha. Gotcha. And we're having a little bit of a connection uh, glitch here, Rachel, but hopefully you'll be able to stick with us. Uh, let us know if you need us to call you or, or connect in a different way. Um, but so let's break that down even more. OK, so. Elections happen. I go and vote in my ward on election day. I cast my ballot. I put in the machine. The machine can't, um, counts it. At some point, the, the ballots literally get delivered to the Dane County clerk for every municipality in Dane County. And you do your canvas. 
what does that process look like? How long does it take? And I know that there's a whole role where the public can watch or be involved. Talk to us about the nitty gritty, all the work that you do after the polls close. Right. So hopefully, can you hear me okay? Yes, you sound great right now, Rachel. Perfect. Okay, great. Um, So after the polls close on election day, um, the municipalities are the ones who will gather all of their results together. So they're going to, you know, take those tapes and they're going to, um, you know, take the inspector statements, which is kind of that log of everything that happened at a polling place on election day. Um, and, you know, some other documentation. And they're going to deliver that all to our office after um, the polls close. So that happens on, on Wednesday after the election day. And then what we will do is we have a board of canvassers um, that can, consists of three people. Uh, so it's the Dane County clerk. And then two other people, a member of one person is a member of the same party as the clerk. And then a, somebody else who's a member of the, a different party. So in Dane County, how that works is that we have our Dane County clerk is a Democrat. So we have two Democrats on our county board and then um, somebody who is a Republican on our uh, board of canvas. And so what they do is they review all of those results that happened on election night. So they will go through uh, each polling place individually and they will look at the inspector statements to make sure, you know, see was there anything weird that happened at the polling place that, you know, might um, need further investigation. They will make sure that the results that uh, printed out on that tape at the end of the polling place match the results that we have here internally on what we call our election management system um, and make sure that everything aligns before they certify um, all of those results. Those sometimes take a, a couple of days for you to really thoroughly yeah. go through everything. It's, depending it's not on the a election quick process. And depending on how many races we have to, to certify, yeah, it could take a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it might happen in a day if you know if it's a small primary, something like that, where there's only one race that we have to certify. But um, for the you know the November election, we'll have to look at every race that's on the ballot. So you know, and there's a lot of uh, you know, it's a higher turnout election. They always yeah. are. So. Um, it's going to take a little bit longer. It'll probably take two, maybe even three days to do that entire process in Dade County. We're talking right now with Rachel Rodriguez. She is the elections management specialist with the Dane County Clerk's Office. Specialist, if I can get that word out of my mouth. Um, Okay, Rachel, so now let's take a step back. We talked about all the things that happen when the ballots show up at your office. What kind of work are you doing right now? We're four weeks out. And how are you working with municipalities to ensure, right, absentee ballots are in the mail? Some communities have early voting, although I know that hasn't started yet. What role does the Dane County Clerk's Office play in in, uh, your work as the election specialist? Yeah, so right now, um, like you said, this is a time in our office where um, we kind of take a step back in the election process where, you know, we've got all the ballots are to the municipalities. So they have all of the ballots that um, they need. Um, we've done. We you know we do our testing too of all of our uh, election equipment to make sure that all the ballots are being um, read the way that they should be. That all the votes are going to be counted the way that they should be. But right now, what we're really doing is we're helping municipalities prepare for that uh, in-person absentee voting period or that early early voting period, as a lot of people call it. Making sure that they have all the supplies that they need. Making sure that they are um, going to be prepped and uh, that that process is going to go smoothly from them. And then we also are answering voter questions too. I mean, because Wisconsin is slightly unusual in the way that we administer elections at the municipal level. Um, lots of people will hear, you know, national reporting, other reporting that talks about how county clerks are involved in, you know, elections. Um, so we get lots of voter calls um, with mm-hmm. questions about how to register, how do I vote, and you know, we're able to answer those questions for voters as well. And where are ballots stored then? If someone had got, gotten an absentee ballot and they turned it in, does East Municipality determine their process of holding on to them and you don't get them until after the election? Or does it vary? That's right. Yep. We, yeah. we don't have any, um, we don't really touch the ballots at all. So until after the election, we send our you know ballot files, our ballot art, as we call it, to uh, a third party printer who does all of the printing of the ballots and they'd get delivered directly to the municipality themselves. So until ballots um, are marked and voted after election day, we actually, our office doesn't touch the ballots at all. So right now it's the municipalities that are the ones that are sending out absentee ballots. And when you mail your absentee ballot back, it goes to your specific municipal clerk. So they're the ones who are storing those ballots in secure locations, um, you know, wherever that might be in their office. Um, You know, if if you're a city of Madison voter, they have a a vault actually that they store those ballots in. Um, If you are in, you know, the 
Count of Albion or whatever, it might be, um, you know, a slightly, uh, maybe it's a locked cabinet uh, that they store ballots in. It really just depends, depends on each municipality, uh, but they are always stored securely between when the municipal office receives them and then when they actually get opened on election day, because in Wisconsin, no absentee ballots can be opened until election day. Gotcha. And then what happens on election day? What kind of work do you do to ensure the safety and success of the voting machines? Right. So um, the voting machines are, again, they are owned by the municipalities. I mean, we program the, they're, they're really just USB sticks that, you know, is, has all of the information that those machines will need to run. Um, but the machines are open by the municipalities. So it's our office that uh, a lot of the municipalities call if they ever have an issue with any of their machines on election day. Things like ballot jams are really common, especially with absentee ballots. Those folds sometimes can you know, create a ballot jam. Or if there's um, any issue that you know, if the machine stops working unexpectedly, we can help those municipal clerks troubleshoot those issues. We also have extra voting machines in our office that we can deliver to a municipality if they need to swap one out during election day. But the security of those machines, too, um, you know, if you ever vote at your polling place on Election Day, you probably uh, you may not have noticed. But, you know, next time maybe you look, there's all sorts of seals that are um, all over those machines that make sure that nobody has tampered with the machines between when they were tested by the municipalities and when they are actually being used on Election Day. They're always stored in secure locations in municipal offices. Um, so those are really um, kept secure by the the municipalities in between that testing period and then when uh, election day happens. And do all the municipalities in Dane County have the same machines or not necessarily? In Dane County they do. Okay. Yep, all the all of the municipalities have the same machines. Um, so everybody in Dane County is voting using the same uh, election equipment. Um, they use the same sort of uh, accessible uh, voting machines too. So those are machines that would be used if you are um, maybe unable to mark your ballot in a traditional way. You might be blind or if you have some sort of uh, physical disability that makes it difficult for you to hold a pencil and fill in a bubble. There's accessible voting equipment that you can use that creates a paper ballot the same way that everybody else has a paper ballot um, and then is also read by those uh, tabulators. And a lot of the municipalities use those machines during the early voting period mm -hmm. as well. So, for example, if you do early voting in the city of Madison, you'll probably vote using one of those accessible voting devices. And is that common in other counties across Wisconsin? If you know, do th in if I was voting in another Polk County, uh, whatever, another county in Wisconsin, do all the municipalities within that county have uh, the same level of uni uh, unanimity or does it vary? Most counties have uniform voting equipment. Now, that doesn't have to be, though. There could be a municipality, um, you know, and it really depends huh. on the county. You know, Dane County has said, nope, everybody's using the same equipment because we don't want to have to program, you know, different kinds of equipment. It's so much easier for us to have the unanimity, um, you know, with the large, you know, we have 60 municipalities, which is way more than just about any other county in Wisconsin. But there are actually still counties in Wisconsin that, that have municipalities that hand count ballots. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's most of them, I would say, have uniform equipment, depending on the, um, where you are. But there are a few still out there that will have um a different maybe or it's maybe it's a different version of a machine from the same kind of vendor as the rest of the county so rachel we have a caller coming in and my very next question was now what kind of efforts is uh dane county doing to um ensure the safety um of our poll workers including yourself and every, all of our election workers and randy had a question uh along those lines so i'm gonna let randy sort of lead this conversation randy what are you thinking uh, hi. Um, the uh, well, first, let me just mention I was in uh, uh, Ms. Rodriguez's office yesterday, and I was um, uh, and the place is a mess because you're you're getting ready for that election. But I was so happy with the way that people were still willing to uh, give me information and uh, do their thing. And I always have a uh, positive experience uh, when I uh, when I visit. Uh, clerk's office the, okay, that's good to know uh, right that said i uh uh i've done uh, poll work myself and i'm uh, always disturbed by the way that people who live in madison and um, 
and see you from day to day are willing to make you look like some enemy that's really that wants to destroy uh, democracy. And uh, whether it's Michael Gableman uh, who gets in touch with his inner thug uh, or Robin Voss, really just about anybody in the uh, Republican majority, I would really like to see them get called out on uh, that, uh, well, that thug behavior because it's, okay. uh, it's just, uh, it's just corrosive. Okay. Well, Randy, I appreciate that, that input and, and Rachel, I'll sort of a pivot with that, right? Anybody, right. That comes and uh, interferes with the staff uh, working on election day or the staff working before and after election day, your staff, municipality staff, what kind of things are being um, done to protect Randy when he's working as a poll worker and, and everybody? Yeah, so this, I think, is something that, unfortunately, um, election officials and poll workers have had to think a little bit more about in the last two and four years. Um, but we have had things, you know, that we have done in uh, Dane County where we have um, offered de-escalation training to municipal clerks and have, you know, offered them the ability to offer that to their poll workers as well if they're training their poll workers Um and, you know, we have really done a lot of work in the, the past year to make sure that municipalities feel like that they're getting the support that they need um, and the resources that they need in order to maybe beef up security, physical security in their office. I know in our office in the last year, we have um, you know done things as far as putting up extra doors in between where the public comes in and where, you know, my office is where the election equipment is or in putting up physical barriers that didn't necessarily exist before. So I think there is, um, you know, a concerted effort amongst uh, elected officials, luckily here in Dane County, too, that, um, you know, thinking about poll worker safety and election official safety is definitely uh, an important thing and um, deserves to uh, be looked at and and be funded. Election officials always feel like they're underfunded. But I think that uh, with uh, the safety, especially, um, that's one issue that um, we're trying to make sure that it is at the forefront of some of the, the decision makers. And talk to us. I mean, how has this changed and have you seen any impact on uh, your colleagues, your staff, other individuals working as poll workers in general? This has, you know, I was on the county board for, you know, 16 years. I had the great pleasure of working with you, Rachel, and it, Usually the county clerk's office is neutral, right? You're not political. You're The political fray was addressed at me as elected official, but not at your office and your colleagues. And how are people responding to, to the thought that you thought you were doing a civic duty and it's been politicized quite a bit now? Yeah, it's hard um, because election officials have always and poll workers have always considered themselves to be, you know, when we're doing our job, we are the, you know, neutral. We are not, yeah. uh, you know, we just want to make sure that people's votes are counted the way that they, you know, have cast them. Um, but we are really being pulled into sort of that political fray right now. And it's, it's a hard place for a lot of election officials. You have um, folks who are retiring early or, you know, leaving the profession um, where they, you know, might not have done it at this time because of those, you know, not even always threats, but just the the politics of being and, you know, pulled into these, you know, conversations around the big lie. And poll workers are feeling it too. You know, they don't want to be on the brunt end of, you know, arguments or divisiveness at the polling place on election day, or when people find out that their poll workers, you know, get involved in conversations out in the community, um, you know, and be accused of potentially manipulating the election, because we know that that's not what's going on. But it definitely, you know, affects the willingness of you know average citizens and that's who poll workers are they're you know they're the people you see at the grocery store and the people that you go to church with you know they're the ones who are running the elections you know so uh, in a large part so you know for the people who have problems with how the elections are being run what they're really saying is they have problems with their neighbors and their friends because those are the people that do the work of elections rachel in our uh, just a few more minutes here. What can we do to support you, your colleagues, um, all the poll workers, but also just to support the concept of 
You know, democracy, lowercase d, democracy works when there are elected officials and people that are political and when there are people that aren't political at all but are dedicated to preserving the um, process and ensuring that democracy happens within the system. How can we um, work and ensure uh, respect for the work that you do? Yeah, so, you know, the one thing that I have always encouraged if people have questions about the elections process is to get involved and be a poll worker. It's the best way to learn exactly what's happening. So, you know, if you want to be able to um, answer questions about how, you know, it's running, or if you're just curious yourself, uh, you know, that you want to know a little bit more about the ins and outs of how elections are actually run, uh, sign up to be a poll worker. We're municipalities are always looking for poll workers. They always need poll workers. And it's the easiest way to learn about, you know, that kind of information. And when you are a poll worker, then you're able to answer those questions or, you know, have, you know, information that in those conversations that, you know, might happen over Thanksgiving with your family members or after church on Sunday. Um, You know, it really takes people being involved and being knowledgeable about the process in order to, I think, really um, support those poll workers and, and make sure that the the truth is the information that's getting out there. Well, and it's one of the few worlds of, you know, our, municipal and governmental system where anyone can get involved and be a part of it so all the more reason to take advantage of that and in our final moment here rachel i did want to ask you the law keeps changing and the supreme court is in wisconsin is still deciding things and how do you keep on top of everything and can voters contact uh the clerk's office to make sure they're aware of the latest uh iterations of the law yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and you're right, things are always changing. You know, there are uh, court cases that are always working through the, the the Wisconsin judicial system or the federal judicial system. Uh, like I said, I think I've been, you know, I said I've been doing this a decade. And I don't ever remember there a time where there wasn't some court case that was being really? uh, litigated that okay. had to do with elections. Yeah, it's just always been a thing uh, in Wisconsin elections for at least, you know, the last 10 years. I don't <laughs> think that that's going to be changing anytime soon. You know, so it is a job if you're an election official to try to keep up on those things. Luckily, we have um, great people at the Wisconsin Elections Commission who um, are making sure that all the clerks, all 1,850 municipal clerks and 72 county clerks are aware of what the changing rules are. Um, But yes, if voters ever have questions, you know, if they've seen something in the news, they're not quite sure um, that, you know, what it means or how to interpret it absolutely contact your municipal clerk or contact your county clerk. We'd be more than happy to answer those questions. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us today. Thank you for all the work that you do and the work you will continue to do over the next five weeks and then some to ensure the uh, success of our elections here in Wisconsin. Thanks for having me. It's been great talking with you. That was Rachel Rodriguez, the elections management specialist with the Dane County Clerk's Office. And previously, we were talking with Caroline Fredrickson from Georgetown Law School and with uh, a senior fellow with the Brenner Center, Brennan Center for Justice. Thanks, everyone, for listening to us today. Thanks, Megan, for engineering. Hooray! And welcome to Jade for producing. Um, and we'll see you all again next week. Remember, you're listening to WORT 89. 9.9 FM Madison. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon, and